Everyone has an opinion. You ever notice that? You ever notice how many opinions are out there? There was a time that if you went to a doctor and you got a diagnosis that you didn't particularly like, then you went to go see another doctor so you could get a second opinion. But now you just Google your symptoms and get 100 opinions in under a second. Right? Right? Some of them, most of them scare you to death. Used to, you would get the newspaper. It's this sort of, uh, it's a piece of paper with news on it. I don't know if some of you don't know what that is. Um, those of you that are, are a little younger than me. But used to get a newspaper and they reported headlines, news, facts. You open it up right to the middle. They actually had a, a different kind of page. It was called the opinion page. And that was where they shared your, they were letting you know this is, this is all opinions, but everything else, we're just reporting news. But now almost every article you read on this thing is opinions. And every 24-7 news channel is mostly opinions. And Fox's opinion is different than CNN's opinion. And that's different than MSNBC's opinion. Used to when you were a kid, so teenagers, uh, some of you, you won't relate to this, but used to when, when, your mom and dad and like me and your grandparents were in school, you might find that someone passed a note around class and it had an opinion about your shoes or your glasses or the way your hair looks or your clothes. And maybe the whole class found out about it. But now, teenagers, you, do, you live in a world we don't. Now they share your, their opinion about that or anything other else with not just everybody in the school, but everybody in the world on the World Wide Web, right? And now everyone has an opinion about everything and everyone else. So we live in a time where we now have an overabundance of opportunity for opinions, we have an overabundance of opportunity for opinions. We have more access to more opinions than ever before. Have you thought about that? We have more access right now to more opinions than ever before. Now you know exactly what everyone thinks about everything because they can just reply to your post and give you their opinion. And on Facebook, it's someone you haven't seen in 10 years. On Twitter, it's a complete stranger. And on Instagram, it's a robot that just wants to collab and sell some clothes. Right? And hint, steal your identity. Okay? That's what they're, that's what they're aiming for. So the, it, what's interesting about this, one of the things that makes this moment in history so unique with this overabundance of opinions is this can be such a dangerous time in humanity because we care what others think. I mean, come on, we, we care what others think. And used to, if you only knew like 10 other people's opinion about you, that wasn't that big of a deal. But now anyone in the world can respond to anything you post and now we have more access to more opinions which is dangerous when we live in this reality that we care what others think. And I know some of you are like, I don't care what anybody thinks about me, but come on. You, 
I mean, if you're in the room today or if you're going to work tomorrow or you're going to school tomorrow, you kind of put yourself together to go out in public, right? You get dressed. You, you, I mean, you comb your hair. You put on some makeup. You shower. You brush your teeth, right? I mean, when I'm at home this afternoon, later on today, I will be in gym shorts, my Nike slides, and a dry fit t-shirt, which is what I want to wear every day, but I care what other people think, so I dress like an adult most of the time. <laughs> right? I mean, like, deep down, I want to be in those gym shorts and my slides, okay? But, like, if I wore that to preach in, we'd all be like, I mean, I know it's a casual church, but it's a little cash for me, Right? And you didn't, I mean, even though we're casual, you didn't wear your PJs to church. You didn't wear your yard work clothes to church. We care what others think. If you get a dent in your car, you get it fixed. It drives just the same. But we want it to look good. So now that we've established that deep down, even though we would like to admit that we don't care what others think, here's the million-dollar question. How much do we care what others think? How much... Do we care what others think about our children, our home, our clothes, our yard, our appearance, our job? What will my church friends think about this? Or what will my non-church friends think about this? What will my parents think about this? Or what will my in-laws think about this? What will my coworkers? More than ever, we are aware that others see our lives and we want them to think good things which is why you always post the best pictures and not the worst pictures. So the question that this makes me ask, is it possible that our obsession with others' opinions could distort or muffle our devotion to God? Let me ask that one more time. Is it possible in this world that is obsessed with opinions, is it possible that our obsession with others' opinions could distort or muffle our devotion to God in a world where we're obsessed with everybody else's opinion about us? Do we care about God's opinion? Listen, I'm so glad that you came today because today's a, a big day in this series, Learning to Lead. It's kind of a day that we are turning the page and we're turning our attention to stories of when King David is actually king. If you're brand new here, we're honored that you came. We're smack dab in the middle of this series called Learning to Lead on the Life of King David. And for the last three weeks, we, um, we'd love for you to go back and watch those. We've been talking about kind of pre-King David. We've been looking in 1 Samuel at these stories of how this shepherd boy was called by God, uh, you know, slayed the mighty Goliath, became a national hero, um, became a little bit of a fugitive, but waited his time to be king at the right time with integrity and character. And we've been learning for, from David not just how to lead organizations or companies or churches or schools or teams, but really how to carry ourselves as we follow God's call on our lives, because my call and your call is probably not to be king or queen of a nation, but God has a call on our lives. And today, we're turning the page. So this is a great time if you're brand new. You come for the last three weeks. We're going to be in 2 Samuel, and we're going to be looking at 
three stories of when David is actually king. In 2 Samuel 5, David is finally anointed king by the people. He'd been anointed by God a long time ago, but he's finally anointed by the people. Saul is dead and out of the picture, and David's time has finally come. And we're going to look in a story in 2 Samuel 6. If you have your Bibles, if, you're, if you have your app open, or maybe you're watching at home uh, there on the couch or on your back porch, I'd love for you to kind of open things up at 2 Samuel 6 there. But I want to kind of prep us for that of what, what we're going to be talking about and what we're going to be looking at today. Because here's what's interesting things. I mean, David from this point on has just been nothing but a hero. But I want to warn you that for the next three weeks, today's going to be a great thing. It's going to be one of those instances where we learn what to do from David, how to lead. We're going to start learning kind of what not to do from David sometimes too. Um, and so today is a great, uh, a great story about his life. In his first major moment as king, this is literally, he's anointed in 2 Samuel 5. This story is 2 Samuel 6. So in his first major moment as king, he does something that every leader has to do, whether you are leading a family, whether you are leading a small group, whether you are leading a classroom, and most certainly in leading your own self. He does something that everyone has to do. He makes a decision. He makes a decision. And at some point, you just have to make a decision. Leaders have to make decisions. And he makes a decision. And teachers and employers and individuals have to make a decision. Every leader has to make decisions. And I want to tell you something. People will have opinions about your decisions. Right? If you are a football coach, you will have to make a decision about what play to call or which quarterback to play, and people will have an opinion. You, probably, you might have had an opinion about that this week, but it really wasn't your decision. It was another leader's decision who has to make a decision. If you are a parent, like you have to make decision about what to cook every night, and sometimes your kids have an opinion about it. Come on. That's not my favorite. Thank you for your opinion. If you are a teacher and you give homework, your class will have an opinion about it. You make a decision of what the homework is going to be, what the test is going to be. If you are um, a physician or you're in healthcare, your patient will have an opinion about the treatment that you give them. If you're an employer and you have to make a decision about the benefits package that you're going to give to all your employees and there might be a change in it, guess what? Every employee in your company is going to have an opinion about it. Now, I like to say this, decisions invite opinions. Decisions invite opinions. Albert Hubbard was an author at the turn of the 20th century and uh, he said this, to avoid criticism, do nothing, say nothing, be nothing. Right? If you don't want other people's opinions, then do nothing, say nothing, and just be nothing. But as soon as you make a decision, people are going to have opinions. So the decision that David makes is to return the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant was this elaborate gold-covered chest that physically, tangibly held the Ten Commandments stone tablets. This was... Uh, orchestrated 
when Moses was leading the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery in what we call the Exodus, and when he received the stone command, they have the stone tablets that God's finger etched the words in. I mean, just unbelievable. They were the centerpiece of sacrificial worship. They resided in the tabernacle, and they went before them into the battle. And if you read the stories of the Old Testament, if they took the they took the ark with them. They won the battle. This thing carried with it a kind of supernatural power that you and I can't hardly wrap our heads around. Like God's holy presence was there, was with it. I mean, if you're a Marvel fan, think like Tesseract Infinity Stone on steroids. Okay? I mean, like... This artifact, this thing, we don't, we don't think of things that way that have power, but this thing had power because it wasn't just a thing. It carried the actual presence of God. You didn't come into contact with it without being affected because God is holy. And it had been a part of Israel for 500 years. The United States of America isn't even half that old yet. It had been a part of Israel for 500 years, but not the last 20. As you can imagine, just like in the Marvel movies and everybody wants the Infinity Stones, everybody wanted the Ark. Every other nation realized the kind of power this thing had. So right before Saul's reign as king happened, the Israelites lost a brutal battle to the Philistines where 30,000 Israelite soldiers were killed. And the, and the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. Now this is why Saul and his army is terrified, mortified when they face Goliath and the Philistines and the story of David and Goliath because they had brothers that were killed in that 30,000. 20 years. They had dads and uncles and granddads that were in that 30,000 that can kill. So, and, and so this scene, the story of the Philistines capturing this thing, though, it, it sets up kind of a, a humorous little section in the Bible. They take it, they put it in their Philistine temple next to, they have this little wooden god. Uh, Dagon is their god. And they set the Ark of the Covenant next to Dagon. And every morning they keep getting up to go inside their, their, their Philistine temple and Dagon is face down in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And they're like, huh, cat must have knocked it over last night. So they pick him back up, and, and then they come back the next morning, and Dagon, there he is, he's face down again over the, in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And then everyone in the Philistine village begins getting uh, what, what the Bible describes as tumors. They begin getting sores. And they're like, get that thing out of here. Right, get that thing out. We don't want anything to do with it. It's got some kind of power. So they take it to a neighboring village. And then, so in that village, they're like, oh, yeah, we'll take it. Uh, leave it there. And then it says everyone in that village begins getting tumors as well, except the translation for them is tumors of the growing. And it didn't take them long to get that thing out of there. <laughs> get that thing out of here. And they finally decide, take it back to Jerusalem. We don't want it. There's a power in this thing. We don't understand. We don't want to take it back to Jerusalem. And the first city they stop in on the way back to Jerusalem, 70 people die just for looking at the ark. 
who don't have the right stuff going on in here. I mean, so there, I mean, everyone around, no one wants anything to do with this. They finally end up leaving the ark at the house of a man named Abinadab. Abinadab. They leave it at his house, I guess in the back by the trampoline. I don't know. But they leave it at Abinadab's house. He lives in a place called Kiriath Jerem. It's uh, to, uh, to Jerusalem, it's about 24 or 25 minute drive. So if you think, if you're right here at the church or if you're in Vestavia Hills, it's about from here to Fultondale. I mean, uh, here to, uh, uh, to Forestdale. It's about a 24, 25-minute drive. Now, they're going to go on camels. They're going to go on horses. It's going to take a little bit longer, but it's doable. Because when David becomes king, he's in Jerusalem, and see, for the entire 20 years of Saul's reign, the ark is in Abinadab's backyard, and he doesn't do anything about it. And sometimes... Leaders have to step up and make a decision. And David makes a decision. Sometimes leaders have to do what others were afraid to do. And David knew that God went before him. So in verses 1 through 5 in chapter 6, it says this. If you got your had your Bibles open, your app open, or you're at home there. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel. And I love this. This is poetic justice, right? How many take? 30,000. How many were killed by the Philistines when they lost the ark? 30,000. There's a redemption. There's a rewriting of the story here. All these able-bodied men. He and all his men went to Baalah and Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God. So they go get it. They go to Abinadab's house. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel, so all 30,000 men, were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. They are giving it all they got in worship. Like, if you don't like bands in worship, you, you wouldn't like David, big band guy. Cymbals, lyres, a lot of stringed instruments. I mean, they're playing the music. This is a huge national moment. I mean, they are worshiping God. This is such an awesome event, historic, monumental event for Israel, and then they hit a snag, literally. It says, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah, remember he was one of the sons of Abinadab who was helping kind of guide the cart. Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. Now, if you're like me, you're like, what? I mean, how does this happen? What, what's going on here? Uh, a threshing floor. This is what a threshing floor looks like. You and I don't know really what a flesh is. So they might have a field of, of wheat or a field of where they're, where they're trying to do this, and then they would build through stone this little circled with a little edge and with stone floor, a threshing floor. So, they can't, they're, so they're in the field, and maybe the weeds had grown up over it, and they didn't see it. 
and there was a rock and they, and they got to the edge of it or maybe they were just walking through it or maybe they were trying to go around it or it was narrow. But that's just to kind of give you a visual of what a threshing floor. And they get there and they stumble and Uzzah grabs it because he doesn't want the ark to fall. And then it, so it says this in the next verse. It says, the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Uzzah drops dead right there. Now, this is a gritty and challenging passage. This is a time when God is trying to reveal his holiness to the world. All the other gods and nations worshipped needed something from humans. And if, I mean, listen, if 70 people died from looking at it the wrong way, what do you think happens when someone touches it the wrong way? This is, this is about God displaying that he is a set-apart God. He is not a God that needs to be fed from sacrifices like the other gods. He is not a God who has needs like the other gods of all the nations. This is a God who just wants his people to revere him, just to worship him. He doesn't need their help. He just wants their adoration. And when his ark falls to the ground, he doesn't need his help, their help. He can catch it himself. But David is just like, come on. In fact, it says this. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? You ever felt that way as a parent, as a teacher, as a boss, as a coach, as a leader? Will this ever work out? Will they ever get it? Will they ever recognize what's going on? Will they ever understand? Will I ever get over this hump? Will I ever make it to the top? Will things ever get better like ever? That's what David's thinking. It's, David's like, it's my whole life. It feels like the ark hasn't been in Jerusalem. 20 years, come on. And David is second-guessing his decision and he's not willing to risk taking it any farther into Jerusalem. So they leave the ark at the house of another man, Obed-Edom, somewhere in between Kiriath-Jerim and Jerusalem. But something interesting happens at Obed-Edom's house. Listen to what happens. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. This was three months later in the story. And the Lord blessed him as his entire household. Turns out God's not like out to just strike people dead. Turns out the Ark of the, the, the Ark of the Covenant isn't just a dangerous thing you shouldn't see and touch. Turns out that it's a blessing in the hands of those whose heart is right. Obed Edom's heart was right. And David, David knew he was a man after God's own heart. And says, I'm gonna give it a try one more time. So, David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing, with rejoicing. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, with everything he had, 
while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets. Now, some of you, if you're like me, I always read that verse, and maybe you're new to the scriptures, or maybe you've read it before, like, what in the world is an ephod? Right? An ephod was a priestly garment, a picture. So this kind of thing right here that almost looks like an apron, but it would, it would have an apron on the front and the back. That was an ephod. It was typically something a, a, a king uh, or a priest, excuse me, a priest would wear over a robe. But David just wearing um, an ephod, and I don't know if he has on boxer shorts or not, but he's just got an ephod. He doesn't have the robe on, and he's dancing with all his might. Now, what does that look like? I think it looks a little something like this. better than me dancing. (laughs) This is pure, uncensored worship of God. Somebody doesn't like it. They have an opinion about it. His wife. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, McCall daughter of Saul, watch from a window. It's really interesting here that the writer in 1 Samuel calls her the daughter of Saul instead of the wife of David because she's acting more like a daughter of Saul than a wife of the king after God's own heart. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. He's dancing, he's obeying God, he is, he is reflecting what he believes is a proper response to God, and she has an opinion about it. People will have opinions about what you think is holy, about what you think is right, about what you think is faithful. People will have opinions. So David, somebody catch the scene. He has no idea she's watching and she feels this way. There's a little bit of dramatic irony, right? The writer's telling us what she thinks before David's even come into contact with her. So he brings the, he brings the ark in. They come into the, the, uh, the place he's prepared a tent for. It. They have a big sacrificial worship service. Uh, he blesses the people. He gives the whole nation food, and he just sends them home. I mean, this is a great, can you imagine coming home? He's like wringing wet from sweat. He'd been at the disco all night, been dancing. This is the greatest day in the nation in two decades. This is the biggest moment in 20 years. Things are finally right again. The right king is in the right place, and the ark is back home. And this is what she says. 
how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full, of, full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would do. So what's he going to do? I mean, imagine walking into that, like, wow, what a great day. Man, hey, hon, man, did you see the party? And he has to ask himself a question that every person's going to have to ask, every leader, but every person has to ask themselves this question. Am I living under the authority of God or the opinions of others? Am I living under the authority of God or the opinions of others? What am I giving weight to? David's dealing with something that maybe you've dealt with. A family member has an opinion about how he's being faithful to God. Have you had a family member who has an opinion about how you're living out your faith? Now, disclaimer here about it, what it means to be under the authority of God and its complexity. God is not going to tell you to do anything contrary to his word. He's not going to tell you to do anything contrary to his word. But sometimes he tells us to do things. I mean, we feel the prompting of the spirit of things that just aren't even dealt with in the Bible, Right? I mean, how do you describe that you feel like the Lord is telling you to sell this house and buy that house, to move into this neighborhood? How do you describe that the Lord is telling you to quit this job and take that job or follow that calling? It's very difficult. It's not like there's a Bible verse that tells you to take that job or not take that job. We go to the Bible to draw close to God, to hear from him, to learn his character, to learn his heart, so that when those things happen, we can know who he is and who he is in us. So it's not like there's a prescription for how David is supposed to act when the ark finally makes its way back to Jerusalem. He is doing this out of reverence, out of faith. This is an act of worship. He believes it's obedience. And David's answer is this. David said to McCall, it was before the Lord, hey, sweetheart, I wasn't dancing for you. It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I was dancing for God because of how momentous this is, because of what he has done in my life. I was a nobody from a nothing town, and my daddy was a nobody from a nothing family. And God called me the youngest of eight brothers, a little shepherd boy to be king, rather than your father, your daddy, who looked the part, or his son Jonathan, who I loved like a brother. But for some reason, God chose little old eighth Jesse's son. So, baby, I'm going to dance for him. And then he goes up. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will celebrate. And then listen, listen to how he finishes it up. L- listen to how, how strong he finishes this out. I will become even more undignified than this. Next time I ain't wearing an ephod. (laughs) And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held 
in honor. You think that is something, you just wait. I don't care if I am humiliated. I don't care if I am undignified. And I don't care with what people with a heart like that think. Maybe those girls know what a leader looks like. Maybe those girls know what a follower looks like. Friends, here's what you need to know. Faithfulness may require choosing personal obedience over public opinion. Faithfulness may require choosing personal obedience over public opinion. Now, don't get this wrong. Don't get this wrong. Listen, our faithfulness doesn't mean we use our faith to be combative to people. We're not trying to be combative to people. We follow Jesus. Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve and not to be served. Jesus said to love our neighbors as ourselves. And I'm not saying we use our faith to be combative. But listen, you may have to choose personal obedience over public opinion because Jesus was perfect and there were people that had a bad opinion of him. And I don't, know, I don't know all of you that well, but I know you ain't perfect. And I'm not either. And in our faithful obedience, sometimes people will have an opinion and we're going to have to figure out which one we're going to follow. I want to tell you something. This will drive you nuts. Trying to make everyone happy all the time. Sometimes you will have to choose personal obedience over public opinion. Teenagers, look at me. Look at me. Sometimes you will have to choose personal obedience over public opinion. There are going to be people who have an opinion about how you follow Jesus. About uh, why you're so involved in church and how you worship and how you obey and how you steward your money. There will be people who don't get it, who don't understand like why you go to so many church functions or why you read your Bible. There will be people who won't get it. There are going to be people who mock you because you talk about Jesus a lot. There are going to be people who don't understand what you talk about when you talk, why you're so all in with God. There are going to be people who make fun of you because you don't use the same four-letter words that everybody else does at work, or you don't go to happy hour every day with the rest of the office. There are going to be people who, who cannot understand why you would foster a child or why you would adopt a child. There are going to be people who cannot fathom why you are giving your life away to someone who lived 2,000 years ago. There are going to be people who have no idea what you're talking about when you say you are following the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And some of them might be, might be uh, family members, might be church members, might be friends, might be co-workers, but you dance with Jesus and for Jesus with all your might. With all your might. And when you're done with that, you tell them, you, if you think that was something, if you think if you, think you don't understand me then, you, I'm, you ain't seen nothing yet. I will get even more undignified than this. I am all in, sold out, taking it to a whole nother level because I was nothing. I was a sinner. I was guilty. I was unclean. I was dirty. And now I am free. I am redeemed. I am saved. I am forgiven. Come on. I was nothing and now I am his. There is going to be some time in your life, there's going to be a come a time that your personal obedience is going to butt up against public opinion. And when that time comes, you dance with all your might. Come on, somebody thank God in here today. Somebody say thank you, Jesus, for turning my life around. 
thank you, Jesus. I was lost and now I'm found. I was blind and now I see. Won't you stand up? We're going to thank God today. We're going to dance today. We're going to say, you turned me around. You picked me up. You changed my name. Thank you, Jesus.